So I've invited two people to come and share with us this morning about uh, the question, what stories and experiences of Jesus have kept you going in your life and faith? I'm going to pass over to Hazel to start us off with that. Hello. Um, So I just wanted to start with this picture which is not helpful if you're listening on the recording, sorry. Uh, But it's a painting by Charlie Magsay called The Prodigal Daughter. And I think, in a nutshell, it just sums up my experience of God over the last few years. Um, Just that image of him holding me and carrying me, being gentle and kind. Um, Far often more gentle and kind to me than I am to myself. Yeah, and not so much for its links to the story of the prodigal son, but just that image of being held and carried um, when you've got nothing else left. Uh, Most of you will know these stories I'm about to share because you've lived through them with us. Um, And quite honestly, some of my strongest experiences of Jesus have been through the kindness and the support and the love that this community has shown to us. So thank you. Uh, You've been a big part in keeping us going. There are three stories that I'm going to share quickly. Um, and just sort of touch on uh, briefly and kind of how I've seen Jesus in, in all of these. Um, first one is our beautiful Eleanor, who's chatting away at the front there. Um, most of you know we went through a long journey with infertility to have her, and we actually had IVF uh, to have her. We were very, very blessed in that our first round was successful, and there she is. Um, but it wasn't plain sailing. Definitely not. Um, Infertility is hard. It's painful, it's lonely, it's just unfair. You've got this grief that you're carrying away that just kind of no one else gets or sort of understands. You kind of feel like you have to keep being positive all the time, but it just felt like an uphill struggle for about three years. Um, And yet somehow, in the midst of all of that pain, there were still so many small blessings. We saw so many little answers to prayer, like in appointments that got moved up six months earlier than they should have been. Um, Things like we managed to get all our treatment done before Luton shut down their fertility clinic services, essentially because of short staff. Then there was the pandemic and, you know, everything got cancelled for months, but because we got through before all of that, um, you know, that didn't affect us so much. And then our chances of it working were really small, like we had a 20% chance with the embryo that Eleanor was. And yet, it still worked. We had a car crash on the way to our embryo transfer. It still worked. Like, just so many things, even once we got beyond that. Like, my water's broke at 26 weeks. She decided not to come then, which is great. Good decision. Um, You know, global pandemic. A whole first week of her being alive, I was stuck in hospital with her because she had jaundice. Andrew couldn't visit us. You know, my parents couldn't get over from Northern Ireland. So many things went wrong. And yet, every time, when I was praying and asking God, what are you playing at? Like, have you not had enough drama? He kind of, the answer I kept getting back, frustrating that it was, was this is for my glory. And this is so you know that it's me, not you. This is me in control and I'm using this to draw people to myself. Because it felt a very communal thing. We had so many people journeying on this with us and praying for us and supporting us and then seeing their prayers answered too and that was wonderful and despite all the drama and all the stress and all the anxiety God was really present and we saw his goodness and we saw his faithfulness and she's here 
despite all of that. And I know I'm biased, but she's brilliant. And, you know, she's a tremendously joyful gift from God. For me, she is living proof that God can and does answer prayer. He can do miracles. Because everything was stacked against her and she's still here. And for me, that's a really helpful reminder, but often, often a lot of the time, certainly in the last year, that's been quite a, an uncomfortable juxtaposition with then sort of my experience of seemingly unanswered prayer. And that's been quite a difficult tension to sort of navigate in that she's here, I've got her every day, I can see that God does answer prayer. And yet, as most of you know, um, on the 31st of March last year, my mum died very, very suddenly um, at the age of just 60. She'd been in hospital for a month with a fractured pelvis. She'd had lots of falls that had been caused by pain in her hip and in her leg. Um, we thought it was muscular. It turned out she had a cancerous mass in her abdomen that had spread to the hip and socket joint. Um, and that's why she was collapsing all the time. Um, we were told on the Friday before Easter that it was she would never be cancer-free, but the good news was it wasn't aggressive. And so actually with the type of cancer she had, with some radiotherapy, she could very quickly be almost pain-free, she'd have a good quality of life. They were talking about her having 10, 20 years. She was gonna come see us, you know, we were just waiting for her to get her COVID jab. We could finally go over to her, because obviously travel restrictions, you know, hospital visiting restrictions, we couldn't see her. Um, then five days later after that, on the Wednesday, I got a phone call from my dad saying that mum had had a downward turn and all visiting restrictions were off and to come. Cue frantic panic because there were no flights from Luton, uh, the Stenoline ferry was booked, how are we going to get there? Um, eventually we did get booked on the ferry. I rang my dad at half past two to say, uh, can't get it until tomorrow because of the way the ferry works. And he said, oh, that's, you know, that's fine, there's no immediate rush, tomorrow shouldn't be a problem, don't worry. Um, we got Andrew's mum round to help us out because um, the house was swarming with builders at the time. Um, madness. Like, Anne texted loads of people, got people praying. Helen turned up with lunch for us, thank you, because I've been so busy sorting stuff out I hadn't eaten. Um, and it was this weird mix of like frantic panic packing, but also just been really excited because I was finally going to see my mum. This was March, I hadn't seen her since July. Um, I hadn't hugged her for over a year. I was finally going to see her. Um, and at four o'clock, well, I spoke to her at half past two as well, because when I rang my dad, um, you know, forgot to tell her I loved her, couldn't wait to see her. That was great. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, four o'clock, I just put Eleanor in the car. We were all set to go to Liverpool. Felt my phone buzz, got it out of my pocket, and it was a message from my dad to say, girls, I'm so sorry, your mum passed away a few minutes ago. And my world just flipped. I was so completely shocked. We just hadn't expected it at all. And I was just like, what on earth? Like, I, I don't get it. But we were praying and what? And I sort of forgot, gave ourselves, what, 10 minutes to sort of try and process that. And I sort of turned to Andrew and said, I'm really sorry to be so morbid, love, but do you want to go and get your suit? And, you know, I'll get my dress because we've got a funeral to go to now. Because in Northern Ireland, funerals are three days later. So we, you know, quickly, and watched Eleanor in the car, we grabbed black items of clothing, shoved them in the car, and drove to Liverpool, because we still had to get the ferry to get there the next day. And I just cannot explain the pain and the trauma of that time, like, trying to sob hysterically, but quietly, in a Stenoline cabin, because there's a 10-month-old sleeping in a cot, and you can't wake her up. But, 
you've got to somehow let this pressure escape somewhere. And then, you know, getting to Northern Ireland and seeing my dad and just the madness of, of those 10 days in Northern Ireland, like finally seeing my mum, but her being in a coffin and, you know, writing her eulogy during the funeral. We cleared all of my mum's possessions, like, then going back to work, like, less than two weeks after she died, and not just back to work from that, but back to work from maternity leave when I've been off for a year. Uh, it's just insane when you think about it now, but, you know, <laughs> just trying to do that. And yet somehow, in the midst of all of that madness and all the pain of the months to come, you know, I was able to function, and that is definitely God, because I'm strong, but I'm not that strong. And there was just, you know, everything else, there's a 10-month-old to care for, too. And somehow, in the midst of all that pain and, and all that trauma, there was this incredible, incredible closeness of God. This comfort, this sense of just being carried, being held. And I can remember so many times of turning up, trying to pray, and it just basically being me crying. And, and that was all we could do. And, and that was still sometimes is all I can do. And yet, in those moments of deep, deep pain, there are those moments of deep, deep comfort. And we kind of then came to the, the retreat in daily life in October. Um, and we kind of, it was the passage of John, John 11, I think, is what we spent most of the week on. Um, and with the retreat in daily life, they kind of encourage you to come with a question, something you want to sort of explore over the week. And mine was, this was six months after mum had died, in my highly unre like unrealistic expectations of myself, I should be right, I should have my life together again now, let's, what are we doing now? So my question was kind of, what next? Um, where do we go now? What does my life look like now? And uh, God's answer was basically, don't rush through this. Like, you're staying here at this, this place of grief at the moment. This is where you are, and that's okay. I didn't like this answer. Um, I also didn't like that we spent most of the week with this passage because I was too busy trying to hold things together. I didn't want to sit and just cry all the time. Um, but it's helpful and it's good to do so. Um, and there's so much in this passage, I won't read it now because it's long, but if you've not read you know, the story of Lazarus um, dying and being resurrected and, and Jesus spending time with Mary and Martha, if you've not read that recently, I highly recommend you do because there's so much in it. Um, like I said, I spent an entire week with it. But just the kind of things I wanted to, to pull out from this. Um, Martha goes to see Jesus first, and they have lots of conversation about eternal life um, and about that hope and, you know, your brother will rise again. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Martha is one of the first people to truly recognise who Jesus is. She's one of the first ones to proclaim him as the Messiah. And that is as a result of the circumstance she finds herself in. Her brother has died. Jesus seemingly didn't turn up when they wanted him to, um, and he's died. And yet in that, she somehow gets this true glimpse of who Jesus is. And they have this conversation about eternal life, and it is comforting, it is helpful. There have been times when I found that really helpful. But what I found a lot in Northern Ireland was when lots of people would come into the door to see us, which was really kind and great. Lots of chicken pies. Presbyterians like chicken pies. Um, what I found is that we'd end up talking about what had happened because it was a shock to everybody. And then, you know, people would always finish the conversation with, at least you know she's in a better place and, you know, she's not in pain now. And, I'm like, and that's true and that is comforting and that is helpful. But it still hurts. 
And I still would have liked to have had my mum for longer, and I would have liked to, you know, for her to hold Eleanor, and to see Eleanor grow, and, and that hurts, and that's unfair, and, you know, I've got friends who still have all their grandparents. I'm, I've lost all my grandparents when I was, you know, by the time I was 15, I'm onto the losing parents part of the proceedings now. Um, so what I found most helpful about this is they have this chat about eternal life, and then after that, you get, uh, can I get a clicker to work for There we go. You get onto this bit where Jesus then goes and sees Mary, and it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And like my favorite two verses in the Bible at the moment, Jesus wept. And what I find so helpful about this is, yes, he knows the eternal life. He gets it. Jesus knows eternal life better than anyone. He's come from heaven. He's the, like, the only one there who truly gets it. And yet, despite all of that, despite all that, being able to look at it positive, like, positively, he also feels the pain. He gets it. And it is okay to feel that hurt and that pain and to feel overwhelmed and lost in human emotion. Like, he is the God who grieves with us and weeps with us, and he gets it. And I think that has been my experience of Jesus, like, carrying us, and he gets it. And so many times when I would be asking God, like, why, what are you playing at? It was like, there wasn't an answer back, not like with Eleanor, you know, that this is for my glory, but like, there wasn't sort of a verbal response, but there was just this sense of being held and carried and comforted and him weeping too, at the unfairness of it all. Um, and in some ways, what a wonderful thing to learn and to experience that, that closeness and that presence of Jesus. And he doesn't promise that it will be pain-free or things will work out the way we want or that he will answer prayers in the way that we expect. And that can be difficult. And, you know, we're about to go through IVF again. I'm very aware that it might not be the same outcome. It, there might be an awful lot more pain just around the corner. And that's really scary. But he does promise that he will be with us and he will carry us. And he is good. That's what I've seen again and again, is he is good and he is faithful. And he brings light out of the darkness and good out of those bad times. Um, and somehow, that's how I'm still going. And that's what I've seen. And I know he will continue to be with us, whatever is around the corner. Thanks. Um, I think if, like, Anyone was going to ask me this question just like a few years ago, like what is getting me going in my faith? I'd be a bit like, why were you asking that? Clearly, just the strength of my faith, the kind of willpower. I'm not going to lose Jesus. Um, I was, kind of, I grew up in like a really kind of conservative Christian community, and I think it was like your, like, if you were, were my youth leader, like, I would have been your favorite. Like, I was just like the best little Christian girl. I was so good at it. Um, I was a girl who was going to like go and be a missionary and like fully go for it and like Jesus was everything and all that stuff. Like, like yeah, I was, I was a good Christian girl. <laughs> um, and then 
And so I didn't really question or I didn't really interrogate my faith. Um, I, I just went with it until I was probably in my mid-twenties when suddenly everything just fell apart. Um, and it was probably kind of like a long-winded unraveling up until that point, but it felt very sudden when it happened. Like I was in the midst of doing my master's and we were looking at cults and coercive control and brainwashing and suddenly it was like, wait, wait. I recognise this. This is what I've grown up with, like this kind of like, you know, you can psychologically induce the Holy Spirit experiences that I've based my whole life on. Like, like, is this even real? What is real? Have I been brainwashed my whole life? Um, and so I started going through this whole process of just like one existential crisis after the other. And that's the place I was in when I came to Luton. Um, and in the midst of that as well, I was trying to, um, I was starting to have this realisation that that I was gay as well, and my experience had been that um, if you're gay, you go to hell, and it's it's not compatible with being a good Christian girl, which has been my had been my whole identity up until that point. Um, so I felt like my whole life was falling apart. Everything I built my life on was just like, what is real? I don't know anymore. Um, and I arrived in Luton and felt specifically led to this church and. Um, and I think that was one of the main things that's kept me going, honestly, in my faith, was coming here and realising that it's okay to question and it's okay to doubt and it's okay to figure it out and not have everything sorted. I think having come to any other church at that point, I, I, I don't think I could have, I don't think I would have stayed in church. Um, and a couple of the things that has also really kept my faith going um, is like what Hazel talked about, Retreat Daily Life. Um, the last two years, um, the Retreat Daily Lives has been pretty transformative, I would say. Um, I think, I like briefly, I think touched upon last year how, like I came into Retreat in Daily Life, I just kind of started to accept that I'm gay and I've started to kind of wrestle with the theology around that and be like, okay, I think this is okay. But there was a part of me who's just like, terrified of going to Jesus with it because I was just like, well, he's probably still going to reject me because that's what I've been told like, my whole life is going to happen. And so the idea of coming to God in prayer was just like, nah, let's not do that. Um, and then at retreating daily life, I remember coming with this question of like, I just want to know if I'm accepted. That's all I want to know. I just want to know whether you can accept me, God. And... I remember having this picture of, um, in the beginning of the week, of me kind of just like hiding in a corner, um, and then Jesus kind of beckoning me forward and making me stand up straight in front of him and being like, I accept you fully. Um, and to be honest, that was kind of all I thought I could hope for as well. I was like, if you can accept me, I think I think I can survive with that. But that was like the beginning of the week, and by the end of the week, I feel like God was like, not only do I accept you, but like come up on the stage, like, you can fully participate here with all that you are, not despite your sexuality, but with it, um, which felt really transformative um, and really kind of shaped the next year of, of starting to be able to, like, come out to people and feel more comfortable in who I was. Um, and then it got to Retreat Daily Life this year, where I was like, you know, I was feeling pretty confident, I was feeling pretty like, I know who I am now, I'm not going to, like, 
I'm not coming here to talk about my sexuality in this retreat, dear love. I've kind of passed that, you know, I've done it. Um, and, um, but as, as Jamie will tell you, I no longer have a personality, I only have a sexuality. <laughs> so, clearly, Jesus wants to go back to that again in Retreat in Daily Love this time. Um, so for one of the sessions of the retreat, I did this imaginative contemplation on Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. So I'm just going to read that bit now. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your rocks or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Um, so I did this imaginative contemplation on this, and I was very much not going in with, like, I don't know, I thought maybe God would um, do something about, like, my deconstruction or something like that. I didn't have, like, an agenda going into this. And as I was kind of imagining myself in the story, I was imagining myself as, as the crippled woman, and um, I kind of experienced Jesus calling me forward, and... Um, and I felt like God was saying, like, you know, this shame that you're carrying for being gay, for, like, trying to fit into this world that is heteronormative and where people are telling you that if you if you are gay, like, it's kind of okay as long as you stay celibate or, you know, do, don't um, do the wrong thing on it or are not too loud about it. Um, this kind of shame that's been on me for my whole life of, like, I am different and as much as I try, I cannot be straight and I cannot be what feels like people accept like it's it's acceptable for me. Um and Jesus kind of lifted me and was like like straighten up like I'm taking I'm taking your shame off you. I want you to like walk out with pride. Um I want you to be who you are. And like feeling him also like rebuke the people who would like tell me otherwise or the Christians maybe who would be like, no you can't, you can't be who you are and be a Christian. And then um, after that, he also turned to me and was like, Creed, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Um, and that just felt so healing and so, um, yeah, transformative. I felt God was like, like people might have their opinions, but um, I want you to walk with pride in who you are and walk with your head held up high. Um, and like up until then, I think I'd still been trying to fit in to this mold of like the good gay girl instead of the good Christian girl. Um, and I felt like God was just like, no, just like, you know, be loud, be proud, be who you are. Um, yeah, and that felt just really transformative. And so those kind of, those experiences that retreat daily life over those few years were really just, like I had got to a point before that where I was just like, I can't, 
try to be a square and fit into a circle anymore. I can't do it. So if this is the faith, like of what I do to keep my faith, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna lose my faith. And yet, like I feel like Jesus taught me through those experiences of retreat daily life that actually, like, listen to me. Don't listen to what all the kind of religious people might try to put on you and, and tell you. Thank you both, Grace and Hazel. What an honour to get to hear your stories. Thank you for being vulnerable and courageous. So we get the opportunity now. I know it feels quite, can be quite hard. We always maybe need just a moment of silence before we get into groups. And I think that's what we will do. We're going to have an opportunity to think about that question for ourselves. What stories and experiences of Jesus have kept you going in your faith, in your life? So why don't we just have a minute of silence just to think about that question. <laughs> 